Welcome everyone. You're listening to another episode of Coffee Talks with Mike. Hope you enjoy the book this week and we're going to get into it. Hello everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Coffee Talks with Mike. I hope you're having a wonderful day wherever you are, wherever you're going. Um, yeah got a cool book for you guys today. I, um, I've been in the thick of some seminary readings that uh, I don't think you would be enjoying so much. Uh, but this is a book that I'm picking back up for a number of reasons that's um, pretty significant, I think, in anyone's life. If you want a book to grab that is relatively easy reading, short, but dense with good stuff. This is one of them, um, especially if you are looking to expose yourself to um, theology that is not from a typical corner of Christianity. Uh, and by typical, I mean more in the American perspective. But uh, I think sometimes we forget that orthodoxy is like one of the most significant pieces of our Christian history. So often people talk about the divide between Roman Catholics and Protestants and all the denominations that come under Protestants, but there are also Orthodox Christians, and there's a lot of rich, rich, rich experience there of the faith. So uh, today, uh, I want to read one of the most significant pieces of writing of the last century or two called For the Life of the World by Alexander Schmemann. Um he was a part of the Orthodox Church. And so um, this is a phrase that is used a lot for the life of the world. And um, yeah, I just wanted to expose you all to a little bit of that. And again, I, I hope to expose you to a bit of what I'm reading for classes too, so I can quite literally be just kind of reflecting on what I'm reading this week, that week, etc. But um, right now we're just doing a lot of biblical readings, which that's not bad either. Of course, the Bible's awesome. Maybe I'll just do an episode or two reading some scripture or talking about some of that. But for now, for the life of the world. So this book in general um, is written about uh, sacraments and orthodoxy. So sacraments, as you might remember, are the kind of sacred uh, practices of the church. So in Protestant theology, there are two sacraments, uh, communion or the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper is one, and baptism is another. Uh, but this is about expanding our understanding of sacrament and expanding our understanding of what it means to encounter God, because that's ultimately what a sacrament is about, is some kind of spiritual, sacred, sacra, sacred moment or experience with the divine. So let's dive in. Chapter one is called The Life of the World. He starts instantly with this very important phrase that he's going to be using all throughout this chapter and uh, rehash all throughout the book. Man is what he eats. All right. There it is. Um, the, the, the importance of this seems uh, obvious and simple, and yet it's very important. Uh, or very crucial that we grasp it, right? We are what we eat. And when we think about that, 
I don't know, even 200 years ago, 500 years ago, a thousand years ago, when food was not something that you could walk in any, you know, bodega or BP station or grocery store or Rite Aid, like food wasn't always readily available. Food was much more understood in the fuller sense of what it represented, right? Uh, now we kind of just go, I'm hungry, I'm going to go get food, rather than food being this crucial, central you know, end in our energies uh, or our focus in each day. But he starts talking about man is what he eats. He talks about all the different ways that we need to unpack how we understand this. But at the end of the day, in the simplest understanding, man must eat in order to live. He must take the world into his body, transform it into himself, into flesh and blood. He's indeed what that which he eats, and the whole world is presented as one all-embracing banquet table for man. So I'll just say briefly, because I'm not going to be able to self-edit in real time. He's using immensely masculine language all throughout. He means man as in humanity. Uh, this was written in the early 1900s, uh, so well, actually mid-1900s. Even so, that was when grammatically it was very normal to use the masculine pronouns for things. Anyways, um, if you didn't know that, now you do. So we eat because everything we eat, we literally digest and transform so that our body can, you know, process the nutrients and, and move on. But when we talk about spirituality and the spiritual life, we have to ask the question like, what? are the things that we eat and not just like on a literal level, but on a spiritual level. And so he talks about the difference between physical and spiritual food. And he says, spiritual food help us. It helps us restore our peace of mind to endure uh, the other, the secular life, to accept its tribulations, to lead a wholesome and more dedicated life, to keep smiling in a deep religious way. And mission consists here in converting people to this spiritual life and making them, quote unquote, religious. Um, but this is not the whole picture. This is sometimes what we reduce things to, right? This is something we hear in our churches all the time. Like, right, like we've got physical problems, but spiritually, we are great. Spiritually, things are awesome. Spiritually, we're going to be okay. And yet we know the physical matters, right? Far too often, I've heard people use Jesus saying, uh, you know, we don't live by bread alone, quoting uh, actually the Torah there, um, Deuteronomy, I believe, as an excuse for why we don't need to be more adamant about solving the hunger crisis in the world. We just need to solve the spiritual crisis in the world, and then we're okay. But we see in the ministry of Jesus, he was very much interested in solving some of the, the physical needs and problems of, of the people he ministered to. So Shmeiman is not content with this simple dichotomy between physical food, spiritual food. He says, there are those to whom the affirmation for the life of the world seem to mean for the better life of the world. And he kind of divides this into two camps. He says, the spiritualists are counterbalanced by the activists. To be sure, we are far today from a simple optimism and euphoria of the social gospel. It's like a social justice or a social um, uh, preoccupied 
perspective of the gospel, which is important, I believe, obviously, but um, it's a very specific school of thought. Look into it, Google it yourself, and don't trust Wikipedia by itself, though Wikipedia is great. Read some resources. He says, all implications of existentialism with its anxieties of neo-orthodoxy with its pessimistic and realistic view of history have been assimilated and given proper consideration. But the fundamental belief in Christianity as being, first of all, action has remained, it, or remained, has remained intact and in fact has acquired a new strength. From this point of view, Christianity has simply lost the world and now the world must be recovered. The mission, therefore, is to catch up with the life that has gone astray. The eating and drinking person is taken quite seriously, almost too seriously. So what he's saying is because of our perspective of the gospel and, and, and the different approaches or energies that we put into that, we have lost a certain kind of focal point of what we believe our mission in the world is. And when we falsely separate ourselves into spiritual people and non-spiritual people, the secular world and the non-secular world, we're missing much of what God is doing, but our lives are supposed to be for the life of the world. Everything in the Christian life is not for ourselves. It's for the life of the world. Remember John 3.16, John 3.17, right? It's not about just us. It's for the world. But we are what we eat. So he goes on, whether we spiritualize our life or we secularize our religion, whether we invite men to a spiritual banquet or simply join them at a secular one, the real life of the world for which we are told God gave his only begotten son remains hopelessly beyond our grasp. Man is what he eats, but what does he eat and why? These questions seem naive and irrelevant to many people uh, because we have these different false dichotomies. And he lists a few. He says spiritual versus material, sacred versus profane, supernatural versus natural. Such were for centuries the only accepted and only understandable molds and categories of religious thought and experience. And there was another one between idealism and spiritualism. But the Bible, as we have seen, also begins with a man as a hungry being, with the man who is that which he eats. He's talking about Adam here. Um, in the Bible, the food that man eats, the world of which he must partake in order to live, is given to him by God, and it's given as communion with God. All that exists is God's gift to man, and it exists to make God known to man to make man's life communion with God. It's divine love made food, made life for man. God blesses everything he creates. And in biblical language, that means he makes all creation the sign and means of his presence and wisdom, love and revelation. And he's quoting the Psalms here, oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. So again, uh, if you haven't taken a sacramental theology course, this is very important sacramental language. The idea that God is creating a sign as a means of his presence. And that's what a sacrament is. Think about what baptism might be, regardless of your tradition. Baptism is about a public profession of faith 
but we're the practice itself is about joining Christ in death and resurrection willingly. Think about the Eucharist or the Lord's table. Again, regardless of the, the intimate intricacies of what you think happens in the Eucharist, we are partaking in a meal that Christians have partaked in, partook in. Christians have been a part of for millennia. And why? Because we're actually partaking in the meal that was 2,000 years ago. And we believe in some way in that meal, we are in the presence of God. Sure, God is present in all places at all times, but we certainly have a mindset that when we go to church and choose to worship God, that God is in some way more present in those moments. Maybe that's bad theology, um, but I'd say it's something to do with the mindset of shifting our attentiveness to God's presence and then our actions as well. But certainly when we say we're going to go to this place and for an hour and a half, we are going to focus on the presence of God alone, then we are far more keenly aware of that presence. Sacraments are the same thing in, in another echelon or another level. But what Schmeyman's saying here is, that, no, 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 it's not just about sacraments that we are typically used to. It's about everything. All that exists is God's gift to mankind. And it all exists to make God known to mankind, to make man's life communion with God. It's divine love made food. So what he's saying there is everything in creation is created so that we can have communion with God. But this is back to another episode with uh, James K. A. Smith, you are what you love. The way that the relationship that we have with the things in our lives matter to the utmost degree. Everything that we do, everything that we love has the capacity to bring us closer to God in communion or to pull us further, depending on our posture towards those things. Our relationship with music, with our spouse, with our friends, with our food, with our jobs, all of these things, depending on how much we allow ourselves to give towards those things. And the intention of that giving really shapes our perspective of love and our perspective of self and our perspective of God. If everything in the world was given to us to be in communion with God for the sake of the life of the world, then everything we do matters. So he goes on, man is a hungry being, but he's hungry for God. This goes to one of those famous C.S. Lewis quotes, you know, we're hungry for God. If there's a hunger in me that nothing in the world can satisfy, perhaps I'm, you know, searching for something not of this world. Man is hungry being, but he's hungry for God. Behind all the hunger of our life is God. All desire is finally a desire for him. To be sure, man is not the only hungry being. All that exists lives by eating. The whole creation depends on food, but the unique position of mankind is in the universe is that he alone is called to bless God for the food and the life he receives from him. He alone is to respond to God's blessing with his blessing. The significant fact about the life in the garden is that man is to name things. 
As soon as animals have been created to keep Adam company, God brings them to Adam to see what he will call them. Now, in the Bible, a name is infinitely more than a means to distinguish one thing from another. another. It reveals the very essence of a thing, or rather its essence as a gift of God. To name a thing is to manifest the meaning and the value God gave it, to know it as coming from God and to know its place and function within the cosmos created by God. To name a thing, in other words, is to bless God for it and in it. And in the Bible, to bless God is not a religious or cultic act. It's a way of life. I love this section about naming because, um, my whole life, I've gone by my middle name because my first name is my dad's name. And I guess that's a little confusing sometimes in a household that everyone gets called the same name. But it's significant that I have that name, right? It's, it's something that has been passed down to me. And it's not something that I, I you know, just kind of throw to the side with no thought. But it's part of my identity and yet not the way I ide- identify is that does that make sense as a subtle distinction there maybe to pivot a little bit to scripture and what shaman's talking about here all throughout scripture we see people and things being named places that people have encountered god as renamed locations places that were called something else but now we call it bethel god was called this but we will now call jehovah jireh you're my provider Yeah, your name was Jacob, but now we call you Israel. There's so many places where naming is so significant. And and I think we lose this sometimes in our modern culture, but we do still have glimpses of it. We don't just like, oh, yeah, like just throw a dart and we'll name them that. Like, no, we, we wrap up names with so much emotional significance, a great, great grandparent. We want to honor their memory and their history by using that name, or we want to use a biblical name to honor our faith, or we want to use, you know, a unique name to honor this person's individuality. Think about when uh, Christ calls the, the apostles and which of them get names and new names. Like, obviously, we talk about Simon to Peter, and we talk about Peter being the rock. There's so many instances where naming becomes so important but I, this language it's saying like names are infinitely more than a means to distinguish one thing from another because it reveals the essence of the thing and a lot of those cases in scripture god named these people or renamed these people before they even lived up to the expectations of that name i think that that sometimes is something lost on us but it's a deeply important thing when we think about the legacy of our faith. The world, I'm continuing here, uh, was created as the matter, the material of one all-embracing Eucharist, and man was created as the priest of this cosmic sacrament. So again, see those parallels, right? In church, you have a pastor or a priest that presides over the Lord's table, over the Eucharist, and gives it to the congregation. But in the world, humanity was created to help conduct the Eucharist, the Lord's table, because all of 
the matter or material in the world is partaking in that Eucharist. And we are called to make sense of that cosmic sacrament to show that Christ is present not only in that bread and wine, but also in all of these other places, if we are aware enough to see. So he goes on, he says, centuries of secularism have failed to transform eating into something strictly utilitarian. Food is still treated with reverence. A meal is still a rite of passage. It's a natural sacrament of family and friendship, of life that is more than eating and drinking. To eat is still something more than just to maintain bodily functions. People may not understand that something more, but they nonetheless desire to celebrate it. They're still hungry and thirsty for sacramental life. Again, think of the most irreligious person or anti-religious you know, religious person you know. Breaking bread together is still a deeply significant thing. Going to get drinks together is still a deeply significant thing that, that holds far more significance than simply giving yourself sustenance. He goes on, it's not accidental, therefore, that the biblical story of the fall of humanity is centered again on food. Humanity ate the forbidden fruit. Now, we're going to get into, uh, I'm thinking about doing a series of, um, shocker, a series of episodes on Narnia and trying to do like two or three parts per book. So, you know, all of you that say you might read it, but you don't want to, you can at least get some stuff. But Lewis in Narnia does a beautiful retelling of the garden narrative of eating the fruit and talks about eating at the wrong time and things like that. It's fascinating. Um, but here he's saying like food is the, the focal point and it's because humanity ate the forbidden fruit. Now there's a lot of the, theological, you know, imagination that goes into why was that fruit there? You know, why would God even put that on people's radar? I don't think that's worth getting bogged down with in this episode, though. I love that conversation. Um, but it's focusing on the idea that eating is the image of life and it's understood as an end in itself rather than as the process by which we commune with God. He goes on, he says, to love is not easy and humankind has chosen not to return God's love. Man has loved the world, but as an end in itself and not as transparent so that we can see God. We've done it so that it's become something that's just in the air. It seems natural for us to experience the world as opaque and not a shot through with the presence of God. It seems not natural to live a life of thanksgiving for God's gift of the world. It seems not natural to be Eucharistic. The world has fallen because it's fallen away from the awareness that God is all in all. The accumulation of this disregard for God is the original sin that blights the world. And even the religion of this fallen world cannot heal or redeem it, for it's accepted the reduction of God to an area called sacred or spiritual or supernatural, as opposed to the world as profane. It's actually this religion we cling to has accepted the all-embracing secularism which attempts to steal the world away from God. We as humanity were called to be the priest of the Eucharist, offering the world to God. 
And in this offering, he was to receive the gift of life, he being humanity. But in the fallen world, man does not have the priestly power to do this because we've created a closed circuit. Man is still loving and man is still hungry. We know it and we know we're dependent on something that is beyond us, but our love and dependence refer only to the world in itself. We're not aware that even our breathing can be communion with God. We don't realize that to eat can be to receive life from God in more than the physical sense. When we see the world as an end in itself, everything becomes itself of value and consequently, consequently loses all value because only in God is something able to find meaning or value. And the world is meaningful only when it is the sacrament of God's presence. Treating things merely as things in themselves destroy themselves because only in God can they have any life? The world of nature cut off from the source of life is a dying world. For one who thinks food in itself is the source of life, eating is communion with the dying world and it's communion with death. Food itself is dead. It is life that has died and it must be kept in the refrigerators like a corpse. Man lost the Eucharistic life. He lost the life of life itself, the power to transform it into life. He ceased to be the priest of the world and became its slave. Man, Schmeyman, man, I'm telling you, for the life of the world, this is so important. And this is a common theme I think you've probably seen throughout the other episodes and other readings that I've shared with you, but everything around us has the capacity to draw us <clears throat> closer to God. And, and that sounds like, a, Ooh, everything's so great. Like Mike, you're such a hippie, like peace and love. It's like, yeah, sure. Uh, maybe you need to learn something from hippies. I don't know all that else to tell you because I, I love this line that like our religion has accepted the all embracing secularism, which attempts to steal the world away from God. We get, begin to believe that God is reduced to specific little areas that we call sacred and avoids these other places called profane. And yet we celebrate our Messiah, Jesus Christ, who spent all of his time with the profane people. Think to yourself, how many scenes in the Gospels is Jesus in the temple or in a synagogue as opposed to in the streets? We're sitting with the worst possible cultural group he could be with. It's overwhelmingly in one direction. I'll let you come to that conclusion. And yet we believe God is not present in those places. We've clearly got things backwards. And, and Shmeyman connects it back to the garden in particular. Because we allowed the garden to be a place where we reduced food to just getting what we want, as opposed to viewing it as communion with God. Man, man, oh man, Schmeyman. We know these things about ourselves. We know the world is not an end in itself, but every time we treat it that way, every time we treat the simplest things in our lives as just an end in itself and not a beautiful gift of God that offers us communion with God, we miss it. And when we miss it, 
as the people called to be priests. This is part of what, you know, in the New Testament talks about the priesthood of all believers. We are holy priests in the world called to draw others closer to that communion with God. When we miss it, we miss our opportunity for the life of the world. So to wrap up this chapter, Shemaiman says, we can interrupt here for a while this theme of food. We began with it only in order to free the term sacramental and Eucharistic from the connotations they've acquired in a long history of technical theology associating it with the Lord's table where we always seem to operate in these frameworks of natural versus supernatural, sacred and profane. In our perspective, however, the original sin is not primarily that man has disobeyed God. The sin is that he ceased to be hungry for him and for him alone, ceased to see the whole world and the whole life depending on the whole world as a sacrament of communion with God. The sin was not that man neglected his religious duties. The sin was that he thought of God in terms of religion, meaning opposing him to life itself. The only real fall of man is his non-Eucharistic life in a non-Eucharistic world. The fall is not that he preferred world to God, distorted the balance between spiritual and the material, but instead that he made the world material, whereas he was to have transformed it into life in God, filled with meaning and spirit. Think about that. Again, this is the importance of knowing your theological history, and I don't expect everyone to read church history or to read like people from the 1200s or, you know, that's not for everybody. But think about some of the most basic preconceived notions we have of what our faith is and what these things mean and Oh, the first sin, the original sin, even that language, original sin, that's not in scripture. That's a theological view about what happened. But when we talk about even the notion that there was a first sin that caused all other sins, which Shmaiman is saying, it's not just disobeying. Oh, disobeying, that is equal with every other evil sin ever, right? It, you know, telling a white lie is as bad as murder. No, Shmaiman is saying, in a much deeper and mystical way, which I think is getting to the heart of the thing, that it's not that we simply disobeyed. The real fall of man is that we live a non-Eucharistic life in a non-Eucharistic world. We started to view God in terms of religion. We started to see the world as material instead of spiritual rather than learning to balance it. There's not a balance when we view everything as spiritual and as a gift from God with the capacity to draw us closer to God. He goes on, but it's the Christian gospel that God did not leave us in our exile in the predicament of confused longing. I love that, confused longing, because every longing we have is true in our bones, but they're confused. God created man after his own heart, scriptural language there, and for himself. And man has struggled in his freedom to find the answer to the mysterious hunger in him. In this scene of radical unfulfillment, God acted decisively into the darkness where man was groping toward paradise. He sent light. 
He did so not as a rescue operation to recover the lost person. It was rather for the completing of what he'd undertaken from the beginning. God acted so that man might understand who he really was and where his hunger had been driving him all along. Before Christ came, God had promised him to man. Christianity is in a profound sense the end of all religion. Religion is needed where there's a wall of separation between God and man. But Christ, who is both God and man, has broken down the wall between man and God. He's inaugurated a new life, not a new religion. The purpose of this book is a humble one. It's to remind readers that in Christ's life, in all of its totality, was returned to man. Given again as a sacrament and communion, life is made Eucharist. It's to show, be it only partially and superficially, the meaning of this for our mission in the world. Our purpose is to show that there exists and always existed a different perspective, a different approach to sacrament. And this approach may be of crucial importance precisely for the whole burning issue of mission, of our witness to Christ in the world. For the basic question is, of what are we witnesses? What have we seen and touched with our hands? Of what have we partaken and made been made communicants. The Orthodox may have failed much too often to see the real to see the real implications of their sacramentalism, but its fundamental meaning is certainly not that of escaping into a timeless spirituality far from the dull world of action. And this is true in the meaning that this writer would like to disclose and share with his readers. He's talking about there to wrap up this church. It's because he's talking about, you know, writing it as an essay um, in the context of the Orthodox Church, which is far more un focused on sacramentalism and uh, mysticism than, say, Protestantism. But again, this isn't just about us. Shemaimen is saying we need to reorient ourselves to properly understand the world around us as God has created it for the sake of the life of the world. Our call is to be priests, partaking in the Eucharist of life, so that we can see that God is present in all that we do. In all of the places you think he won't be, God is there too. So this day, go and find where God is already with you and show someone else his presence there. Go in peace.